over focus on results when kids are really young because honestly your performance when you're young is is usually determined by wherever you were born compared to the calendar cutoff than how good you might be when you're 18 or 20 or 22. So if you're an older kid and a, an early bloomer, you're going to have youth sports success. But what happens is a lot of those kids don't develop the habits, the focus, the hard work, the grit, the resilience to actually make it to the level that you made it to when everyone's athletic and everyone's tall and everyone, you know, where, where talent is not the great separator. <laughs> Um, and so I think these are the things that I see as issues. So when we become so outcome focused early on and then we cut the quote bad kids to only keep the good kids and then we give those kids the resources and no resources to the late bloomers, then there's increased costs. You know, we're creating all these barriers to entry into sports and we're segregating kids at far too young an age that no talent scout would ever say is a good thing. And, and so these are, the, I think, some of the biggest issues. And they're not – this isn't just a sports issue, right? This is a a health issue. You know, I don't know what percentage in Canada of, you know, the money that comes in goes out to health care. But I know it's a lot, and it's only growing just like it is in the United States. And, you know, what we know is that if we could keep kids active, one hour a day of activity would reduce health care costs over 20 years by, like, trillions of dollars. It is time to do something about inactive populations. From physical literacy to policy change to youth sport, education, and business development, we are a collective of smart and experienced servant leaders ready to take a stand. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective Podcast. It is time for action. Hello, my name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Canadian Beach Volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and athlete entrepreneur on a mission to positively shift the future. I will be your host as we speak with members of the collective to gain insight, challenge the status quo, and share our passion for improving health and sport culture. So clear your mind, grab a notebook, and let's dive into this episode. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective podcast. Today's guest is John O'Sullivan. He's the author of two best-selling books, CEO of Changing the Game Project, Champion for Building Value-Based Organizations and Teams, and ultimately leads parents and coaches to help build a player-centered youth sports environment. John, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Martin. I appreciate it. Excited to have a conversation with you here after a follow-up to your, your talk in Ontario recently. We had a nice little connect, so a lot of great things that we can go over today. Yeah, no, I'm excited. I know we've we've bounced around each of our busy schedules trying to find a time, so it's awesome to finally be on. Perfect. And where are you calling from today? I'm at home in uh, Bend, Oregon right now, uh, getting ready to head out soon for sort of my last big trip of 2014, doing some talks in Boston and Virginia, um, 2017, right? What year is it? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then I get kind of six weeks off where I don't have to get on an airplane, which is great. Beautiful. We're well, looking forward to hearing why and, uh, what your message is while hitting the pavement. Um, would love to get three words that you would use to define yourself and, and you can go as deep as you want on this one. Hmm. Um, you know, it's funny that this seems like 
you know, a, a gotcha question, but it's uh, it's something that I do think about. And I think about this because as I was growing, changing the game project and needed to bring in some other speakers, I got some advice from a friend of mine. He said, you have to figure out what people resonate uh, about with you because you need to hire speakers who bring those same qualities. And so I think for me, that would be um, passionate, you know, passionate about sports and the effect uh, that sports can have on, you know, young lives and, and how important it is that, that coaches have to be passionate and love the sport. Um, authentic, you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, just you, you have to walk the walk and you have to talk the talk. And so whether you're coaching, whether you're parenting athletes, there has to be a great uh, authentic consistency about what you do. You know, and then I think, you know, the, the third one for me is just, um, uh, you know, trying to be humble. I walk around the world teaching coaches to be lifelong learners, and that's what we have to be as well. And so when new stuff comes along, even if it goes against some of the things we've said in the past, we really try to read it and digest it and say, well, you know what, we might need to shift gears here. So. You know, I think humility and authenticity and, and, and passion are sort of the things that define uh, me as a person and hopefully uh, the Change of the Game project as an organization. Well, I can certainly vouch for that because our, our last uh, contact, which was at the uh, Pan American Games Centre when you spoke for the uh, Ontario Ski Association, um, you had a great presentation to help out those coaches with with culture, and I'd like to say that each one of those points, passionate, authentic, and humble, really did shine through your presentation. And one thing that I noticed the most, which I, I really loved, is that you used so many examples of you putting it into play into your own coaching career. And so I'm sure this is going to resonate throughout the entire conversation, but you're in it. You're doing it, which is amazing. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's a funny thing. You know, I, I mean, I had, I went down this path before changing the game project just as a coach, right? As a high school coach, as a, a college coach, as a youth coach from age six through, you know, 18 as a WPSL women's soccer coach. So I'd kind of seen all these levels and ages and, and stages. And then when I started changing the game project, I, I kind of got out of, the day-to-day coaching for a while. And then just over a year ago, I got back into it, um, coaching my daughter's 12 year old travel soccer team. And so, yeah, they, they're in a way, my little Petri dish as well of, I've learned a lot and I've met some incredible coaches and, you know, what can I, you know, how do I take this and make this real? Because again, we get objections like, Oh, well, that's nice. You can do that at Stanford, but you can't do that in my town. And so, yeah, I'm just in any town USA doing, you know, certain things that I go and speak to professional coaches about doing. And guess what? It works with my 11 and 12 year olds too. (laughs) Well, on so many occasions, uh, someone would put their hand up saying, I don't know how to do that. And you were just so quick to respond, giving a real life example with 11 and 12 year olds, which I really thought broke the boundaries because we weren't talking about high performance. You were just talking about culture at any level. And if you can build culture with a group of 11 year olds, I'm pretty sure you can build a culture anywhere. Well, yeah. And I think sort of that, you know, middle school age group is a great age group because, um, you know, they're not that far removed from, you know, you know, just learning the sport 
and they're not that far removed from a more high performance pathway. And so there's similarities of both. You know, if you're only working with eight year olds, you can say, uh, how's that going to fit with 18s? And if you're only working with 18s, it's there. But when you're working in the middle there, you, you know, you can start you start to see the characteristics that really blossom at 16, 17, 18 that maybe send someone down a more elite performance path. But you also see the little kids. <laughs> you know, you don't forget the little kids and why they're there. And so I think it's a really fun age to work with. Love it. Well, we had a bunch of different titles and, and amazing ones at that. I uh, just would love to know, like, how would you describe your occupation? Uh, tons of things there. So feel free to kind of spread it thin or, or dive into one or two. But would love to understand your, your day to day and what you're up to. You know, I'm 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 terrible at my elevator pitch because I feel like changing the game project has morphed into so many things and we're doing so much now on on different levels whether it's coaching and parent education and board development with you know a local nonprofit sports organization to working with governing bodies like Alpine Ontario or U.S. Olympic Committee or U.S. Lacrosse or soccer, you know, different sports at sort of the highest level and then everything in between. And um, so, you know, we, we have a team of speakers that goes out and does talks. Um, we have online education programs. Obviously, I, I've got a couple of books and um, my main man, Reed, is coming out with a book. I work with a guy, Jerry Lynch, and we do team development work on the college level, and he does some uh, professional athletes and teams as well. So we're, we're kind of all around the sports scene from, uh, you know, I, I guess youth through the pros and, and trying to make it a more, you know, understand not the X's and O's side of the game, but if we focus on character development and connection and trust and confidence and things like that that's when really when we a get the most out of our athletes but b we we develop skills that transfer from the sporting arena to the rest of their lives and you and i have talked about that a lot right like this is you coming from an olympic athlete and say well what did i learn you know becoming a, a an international level athlete that i can apply to everything else i want to do in my life you know well, I, I was so fortunate because beach volleyball was really an athlete-led sport. I didn't really have a coach. I was responsible for everything. So all the things that I learned in that journey, I was able to quickly apply. But other sports, team sports, <clears throat> where someone tells you how to do something throughout the whole time, you may have that, but you may not know that you have it. And you may not have been trained to flip that over and apply it to your life. And so one of the things that I, I can't wait to speak to you about throughout this conversation is like you were talking about instilling values of the day or focuses with these young athletes saying, hey, we're going to work on this in today's practice, which had nothing to do with the sport, but had everything to do with the sport at the same time. And you're developing that person through the practice, through that single intentional thing, whether it was being a great teammate, being fearless, like competing, um, which, which was really fascinating. The number one objection that we get from, I don't have time to, you know, teach that stuff. I got so much you know, competency stuff, so many boxes to check here on our tactics and our plays and all this. And it's so funny because it's like, well, but wait a second, you know, if your player showed up a little bit more focused, if your players showed up and worked a little bit harder, if your players were a little more positive or they held each other accountable, right? Are these all things that you want to happen on game day? 
Well, if they are, then why aren't they part of your practice every day? And 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 when you outline your team values and when you come up with sort of this is the way that we do things here, um, what happens is your practices get that much better, which means your performances get that much better. I'm consistently amazed watching coaches um, who who have the best of intentions and they love their kids, but what they do in practice looks nothing like what they want out of their matches, and then they wonder why. But then they're not open to changing that either. Oh, so fascinating. Um, a little bit more specifically now, what what are you currently working on, John? Man, I am working on another book for coaches. Um, I've just been so busy these last couple of months, I had to put it aside, but I actually have the best of intentions to um, spend my next six weeks doing a bunch of writing on that front because I have it in my head and I have it in my heart and it just needs to now appear on my computer. Um <laughs> <laughs> isn't there an app number, for that number two <laughs> what's that is isn't there an app for that i, I hope so I, I hope so is a dragon or something like that I, I i i need to i need to make that happen um you know number two obviously um reading myself and, and jerry started this way of champions podcast which has been super fun because the opportunity to speak to elite athletes and coaches at the top level but then also the psychologists and the sports scientists and the researchers who are who are doing the the work on the university level of well how do we develop expertise and how do we lead better and giving them a voice as well for coaches and, and parents so really the podcast has been an incredible boost for my own coaching education and Reed and I talk about this all the time like we're doing this but we're learning so much it's great I've incorporated so much of what I've learned in that into our talks. Um, and then Reed and I are working really hard on coming up with a series of online programs. So um, some more online coaching education for organizations um, that have, you know, that are relying on volunteers and are just, they can find lots of drills and exercises for them to do. But how do we teach them to communicate with kids and, and, and lead and um, do the right things? So we're trying to create um, resources in that area for for youth sports organizations and high schools so they can say, hey, here's a little one-hour course our coaches can all go through that'll really help them understand what, what kids need from them. And it really has nothing to do with how your soccer practice looks or how your basketball practice looks. I love it. Well, maybe maybe this question will, will further develop that. Um, what problem or issue are you trying to solve through let's say that last point because um, i'd love to get into how you're impacting uh the the practices and games but more importantly the coaches and and giving them resources that they can apply directly um to all of their plans um in a nutshell um i, I think the biggest problem in coaching education is that it's very technically and tactically focused or what we call x's and o's right that that when you go and do coaching education, you spend most of your time learning drills or how to organize a practice better or things like that. And that's all great. And it's super important. And there's no issues at all with the more you know about your sport, the, the better a chance you have at being a great coach. But realistically, that having a lot of knowledge in that area makes you a trainer. If you really want to be a coach, that's when we're talking about how do you communicate better? 
How do you show your athletes respect and encouragement? How do you be demanding but not demeaning? Um, how are you a positive role model? How do you show that, you know, how, you know, how much you care so that they actually care how much you know, right? These are all the things that I think have gotten lost in a lot of coaching education. And I think most coaches would tell you that as well, um, that, yeah, we don't see these things in coaching education. But yet when we ask athletes what they need from their coaches, these are the first things that that come up. And so if we're not teaching our coaches these skills, that's a big problem. And I think the first part is making them aware that these are skills and these are things that you need to learn. And so um, that's one of the biggest things that we're trying to solve. And then number two, realizing in, in Canada, in the United States, um, so many of our coaches are, are volunteers, right? So they're not going to do 20 hours of coaching education. Um, so what are the things that we can solve by sending them a, a PDF or a great app of activities to run? And then what are the things that um, we really need to teach them from, let's call it the soft skills sides of things? And then I would say the other biggest thing is just understanding the research now on, you know, motor learning and skill acquisition that that games based learning is far more effective for actually transfer of knowledge from practice to to matches or to games. Right. If you and one of, you know, if you hit volleyballs back and forth um, with someone, you know, and never used a net, it doesn't look the same. Right. It doesn't look the same. And so how do we make our practices look more like the game so that the things that we do in practice transfer to the games? And a lot of coaches work under this myth that, oh, well, we have to layer on all these technical skills before we can ever get into the game. And it's really just not true. You know, if if you're if there's no decisions involved in your practice, they're not learning how to make decisions that the game requires. Love that last piece. That's great. Uh, just wondering from a personal perspective, how are you guys coming up with this content or, or how are you positioning yourselves within this interest industry? Because these all sound like no brainers, but somehow it's not out there. Are you guys building these out and, and training and, and trying them and, and then sharing them? Or are these resources that you're kind of accumulating and, and building upon? Like, how is this whole program or, or I guess train of thought coming together? Well, I mean, I think first of all, a lot of this information is out there and it's been out there for a long time. You know, the research has, has, you know, shown different things about skill acquisition for a, a long time. Um, the understanding of how people learn and how the human brain works. We're learning more and more about that every year. Um, and there's certainly, it's not like every researcher agrees on what is, um, what's exactly right, you know, but you know, there, there's an argument of, you know, for young kids, is it practice or is it play that makes them, you know, better and engages them with the sport? And the answer is probably it's someplace in the middle. Right. So, um, you know, like the U.S. Olympic Committee has just come out with their quality coaching framework. And this is a research-based, um, you know, 60, 70-page document of now the USOC saying, what does quality coaching really look like based on the research and um, 
you know, if this is how we're going to evaluate our coaches at the top level, we should also be evaluating all our coaches all the way down. So this is like great work by Wade Gilbert and Chris Snyder um, putting this together. So all we're really doing sometimes is just saying, hey, this great resource is out there and this, um, it, you know, validates not only what we've read, but what we believe and what we've seen work. Um, and again, you can throw that in someone's face and they're still not going to change, but you know, you know, then they come back on our Facebook page or on one of our blogs and they say, I disagree and great. This is a place for a discussion, but you got to bring something to the table, right? You can't just disagree because that's not how you were coached growing up, right? Like we can't build sports systems based on a hunch. Well, that, that was a great takeaway for me after we connected on a personal level was, you really encouraging me to use science, use some type of resource that's scientifically validated to prove a point. That way it's just not someone spouting off an opinion. And that's the last thing I want to do is shout from the top of a mountain about something that's just totally random. So, Well, I've been informed. Everyone's you know, entitled to an opinion. But you know, in this day and age um, where everyone has a Twitter account or a Facebook page, right? everyone gets, has now a public platform. 20 years ago, before you could self-publish a book, um, you know, the publishers would vet, well, why is this person qualified to write this book? And then they would vet, well, which ones make it into bookstores? Now anyone can publish a book, which I think is a great thing, but it also means that there's no sort of screening process, right? 20 years ago, if you were on the um, news talking about, you know, a foreign policy crisis, um, you probably had a PhD or some background in government that gave you the right to have an informed opinion. Now we look at that opinion and the opinion of, um, you know, of, uh, you know, the guy with the Twitter account and we hold them at equal weight, you know, and, and I'm just consistently amazed as I read the news of when someone says something and they're like, but people disagree. Why? Because they have a Twitter account. Like, you know, not all opinions are created equal. And just because you have one doesn't mean it's right. Absolutely. So let's reel it back in and, and just let's define what... Oh, you don't six... want to talk about foreign policy? <laughs> in in this time, crossing the, the Canada-U.S. border, we'll skip that one politely. <laughs> um, what does success look like for you, considering that's that's what you're looking to to do, is, is impact those coaches and provide them with that really nice... Like, qualified uh, a resource to improve their practices? Well, you know, what we're seeing is individual coaches who have come to one of our talks or who have followed us online or who listen to the podcast or who have connected with, you know, people like yourself or other people in the Quality Coaching Collective and and, and just who, who now have some trusted resources to say, hey, this is a good path. I'm on firm ground here. And for me, um, what I've seen, you know, when I get an email back from a coach who says, you know what, like we've turned around this program here because we now have values and we now have a way of doing things here. And it's translating on the scoreboard, but more importantly, it just feels good to be here, right? The kids love it. The parents love it. Um, I love coaching this group um, because now we sort of have uh, guiding principles that we didn't have before. Um, number two, people who are out there starting their own, 
you know, it, it, sometimes they're part of a club that doesn't really adhere to this, but they can have their own little kingdom and say, hey, within our kingdom, we're going to do things differently. And then others who are out there starting and building sporting organizations based on these types of values espoused by the Quality Coaching Collective or Changing the Game Project or the Positive Coaching Alliance and saying, you know, hey, we're going to actually build a sports organization based on sound science and research, not just because this is the way we've always done it. Moving to something that's a little bit more, I guess, personal within what you've been trying to achieve, what was the most recent or, or the last big win that you had? Oh, man. Um, you know, I, I mean, th- there's so many different levels of, of that, right? Um, you know, I got an email from a coach the other day who I've never met and just reached out to me because he was kind of at wit's end, first-year uh, coach of a program that had really been struggling. And we just talked, you know, and, and had some players whose behavior issues were really affecting the team, but they're the best players, and what do we do? And, you know, I just reached out to him, had the season go, and, you know, it might not have looked awesome on wins and losses, but he really, I think, was able to, change the culture around a little bit. And number two, um, you know, he realized, you know, with some of these problem players, you know, that reverted back to their old ways. Well, and then he's getting nasty texts from mom or dad. And he's like, you know, for some of these kids, it's not their fault. Like if that's what they're getting at home, there's nothing I'm going to do. That's going to change that or fix that, you know, sadly as hard as I can try. And so I, I think, you know, you know, that type of email is awesome. The type of email just if, you know, when I get something from a parent of a kid that I coach that says, you know, this was the best season of sports we ever had. And we didn't win all our games. We didn't even win most of our games. But we d- developed players and we valued people and we um, and, and we tied what we we're learning on the field to to life. I think, you know, that that kind of stuff makes me feel good that kids want to come back. And then they're also telling their friends so more people want to join. And that's like I think when people go out, you know, when we are coaching youth sports and the families from your team, when their friends ask them, should we do this? And they're like, hell, yes. Like that says that you're doing something right. Absolutely. Well, in in one part of your your conversation uh, to Alpine Ski, you spoke about all these practices and built up this positive momentum for, for your coaching year. And then you, you shared, you didn't win a game, but for five minutes you had us rolling. I'm like, this must've been the best season ever. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and again, when you look at, you know, you can't significantly change your talent level when you get a team. Right. And then with that team specifically, we were put in a division when I took the team over the season had already started and, we were in way over our heads. We had no business being there. So from day one, I knew that if we were going to measure our success in wins and losses, we were not going to be very successful. So we had to create small victories and, and ways to measure progress um, and ways to shape behavior so that we knew that, hey, over time, we are going to change this, right? And I think 
a lot of coaches blame, you know, ah, the parents, the parents, but it's really only a very small percentage of parents that are a problem. And we have to stop using the, my friend Sky says this, we have to stop using the bad parents as an excuse not to engage with the good ones. And um, I totally agree with her. I mean, she is dead on with that. And so, you know, when we go out and we engage with them and, and, and we really highlight the ones who are doing well, we create better connections, we learn about their kids and, and, and we give them something more to value than, you know, did we win, which builds loyalty. And then, you know, and then the kids see that too, that, Hey, you know, learn in a sport like soccer or volleyball or hockey or whatever, it's, it's a marathon. Like it doesn't just happen overnight. So just be patient. Good things happen. Love that. Now, d- taking your uh, tons of years of, of coaching and, and now with Change the Game Project and Way of Champions podcast and the books that you've written, you know, let's dive in a little bit deeper. Like, What issue or problem are we facing in the youth landscape today? Well, I think uh, a number of things, right? Number one, we have a huge dropout rate from sports. And, and the kids who are dropping out are not just, oh, the kids who aren't good enough. Oftentimes, it's the kids whose star shines brightest, the soonest, you know, that get, you know what, you showed a great ability at hockey at six and seven. So now you got to play year round hockey and you got to go to summer skating camp and you got to do this and that. Um, and at 14, they're like, you know what, I haven't had a weekend off in the summer in four years. I'm not doing this anymore. Right. So. So that dropout rate, which I think a lot of it's caused by early specialization um, and kids drop out either because they're burnt out or they get injured. Number two, an over-focus on results when kids are really young. Because honestly, your performance when you're young is is usually determined by wherever you were born compared to the calendar cutoff than how good you might be when you're 18 or 20 or 22. So if you're an older kid and an early bloomer, you're going to have youth sports success. But what happens is a lot of those kids don't develop the habits, the focus, the hard work, the grit, the resilience to actually make it to the level that you made it to when everyone's athletic and everyone's tall and everyone, you know, where where talent is not the great separator. (laughs) Um, and so I think these are the things that I see as issues. So when we become so outcome focused early on and then we cut the quote bad kids to only keep the good kids and then we give those kids the resources and no resources to the late bloomers, then there's increased costs. You know, we're creating all these barriers to entry into sports and we're segregating kids at far too young an age that no talent scout would ever say is a good thing. And, and so these are, the, I think, some of the biggest issues. And they're not – this isn't just a sports issue, right? This is a a health issue. You know, I don't know what percentage in Canada of, you know, the money that comes in goes out to health care. But I know it's a lot, and it's only growing just like it is in the United States. And, you know, what we know is that if we could keep kids active, one hour a day of activity would reduce health care costs over 20 years by, like, trillions of dollars. It blows my mind how much of an impact sport can play on health culture. And um, a stat that I, I can't really cite where I got it from, but uh, it came through the Quality Coaching Collective Network, and it was 70% of youth at 13 are not returning to sport. And I just, it blows my mind mm-hmm. to understand what are those 70 kids or 70% of the kids going to do 
to value their bodies, to value being active, to value being a part of a team or a group and contributing in some way, shape or form like this, the life skills that sport presents to youth. It's so broad and so important for development. And like, holy smokes, if we don't tackle said problem, like we're really hurting ourselves here on a huge systemic level. Yeah, exactly. And again, not just on how many medals did we win the Olympics, but on, you know, how much it costs to keep our people alive, right? And 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 healthy. And, you know, are we waiting for the magic pill? Or when we know that activity makes a big difference, especially in youth, right? Especially in age 10, 11, 12 years old, that's when that life long love of activity is really formed. It's very hard to take a kid who's not active at those ages and, and, and make them an active adult. But people who are still involved in sport and active at those ages are likely to stay active and have so many more positive health outcomes. I, you know, I always recommend people check out designedtomove.org. It's just a great website with all these statistics on it. And um, you know, today's 10 year olds have a shorter life expectancy than their parents do due to inactivity. So, um, you know, the video game makers are working really hard on ways to make kids play more video games and sit in front of their computer. I think sports and PE needs to work really hard on, on making kids more active. I just wrote an article for uh, a Toronto magazine. Uh, they asked me if e-sports should have a place in the 2024 Olympics. And I, I politely said absolutely not and defended defended it for, for all Olympians and how much time we put in building our bodies for our craft and, and going through that experience of, of suffering for something that we truly believe in and, and building that resilience and, and grit and all the beautiful benefits that come with it. You know, there, there's something to be said for that versus, you know, sitting down or even if it's looking at a TV screen and doing some things actively in front of some type of motion sensor, but two totally different ball games. And you nailed I'm just it. Just thinking about the performance enhancing drug side of like esports. you know, people <laughs> up for 72 straight hours practicing and yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree with you on that one. I, I had some, some good support there from, from my cohort. Um, good. Well, let's, let's, Look at like how could we tackle that that problem of kind of that that dropout or even the the outcome basis of, of valuing sport? How could we we look at changing that? Well, I mean, we've kind of outlined some of the problems, so let's look at you know right the solutions. Number one, we've done pretty well at asking kids what they want from sports. You know, what makes it fun positive team dynamics, being respected and encouraged, learning new stuff, uh, the excitement of competition, all that. So, you know, ticking those boxes with our sports experiences and what we're running of like, hey, are we, you know, are we, are, guys, are you enjoying this? Because if you're not, like, you're not here to work sports, you're here to play sports. Um, number two, you know, doing our best to limit travel and huge commitments for during these sports sampling years, you know, when kids are nine, 10, 11 years old, like, you know, we need kids to be able to have seasons and not just year round commitments so that they can find a sport that maybe is, uh, you know, a great fit for them. I'm sure there's plenty of phenomenal volleyball players who maybe started in basketball, 
and then found volleyball, right? And and there's great basketball players who started in soccer, you know, Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant, you know? And so, um, you know, asking kids, you know, removing barriers to entry. Um, and then, you know, and then I think just being really, um, you know, more proactive in our coaching education, right? When when they ask kids what makes sports not fun, most of the things have to do with the adults. So the parents and coaches have a far bigger influence on what makes sports not fun than the kids themselves. So we need to do a better job of teaching that to our coaches and to our parents because I don't think you know they dedicate that much time and money to show up and be like, yeah, I want to screw my kid up. Right. But but if we don't teach them the things that make, you know, the kids hate it, then then we're just leaving it to chance. I I love that. And, and no one has the intention of, of not enjoying it or I'm going to ruin this experience for my child or I'm going to sabotage all these kids. Like <laughs> Everyone is in it for the right reasons. And if we can just get better informed, uh, that would oh, yeah. be amazing. Yeah. I mean, you, th- you think about like we talked about games based learning, right? lots of small sided games like no kid goes to you know gets in the car to go to practice goes i hope we stand in line a lot today right they want to play right so can we not have them stand in line a lot <laughs> uh love it it's super simple concept but i i agree we we need to get back to the basics and and increase the the enjoyment and the love for the game at those younger ages and really do our our best to provide them with the opportunity of sports sampling. I was talking with uh, Wendy Redden Glover in uh, a recent podcast and, you know, she was trying to lobby for true season dates and mandate when hockey starts and stops so that other sports don't suffer for that child because hockey is the big one or, or another one, for instance, whether it be soccer or baseball, but, to create these windows for sports and mandate them so that kids can play three sports in a year and they're not ruining the team or the coach has them signing a contract saying they can't. And then all of a sudden everyone's just kind of missing out on, on this whole process. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I mean, I think that would be incredibly hard to do, um, you know, because we now have uh, so many businesses that have built up around sports, you know, you're going to tell, the owner of the hockey rink that there's only hockey four months a year, he's going bankrupt. Right. But what I do think we can do is, you know, you know, this, the rise of multi-sport clubs. Like I, I feel like there's such a need for multi-sport clubs that provide top, top level coaching, you know, coaches. So, and I'd say again, 12 and under, right. So sports sampling ages where, um, you know, kids get seasons and they have the opportunity to have a, let's call it a soccer focus in the fall and a basketball focus in the winter and a lacrosse focus in the spring or whatever, you know, insert sports, doesn't matter. Um, but that it's a place for the good athletes to go where they'll get good competition in those sports Um and really good coaching. You know, what happens with a lot of multi-sport organizations is they rely on volunteer coaches. And so you might get a phenomenal coach or you might not. And so people gravitate out of those quickly to travel clubs or, quote, competitive clubs where, you know, they're quite right in saying we provide a better coaching experience and our coaches are far far more likely to be certified in all these things. And so um, I think this is where 
there is an opportunity for people to say, we're going to get a bunch of phenomenal coaches and, you know, we're going to offer a three sport experience where, because we're all working together, we're not competing with each other, you know, with these kids. And yeah, you know, when they're 11 or 12 and, you know, one kid decides like, man, I really love soccer. Like we're going to move him on. And he's had the opportunity to play lots of soccer over the years. And, you know, even during the spring, when it's a lacrosse focus, it doesn't mean there can't be a soccer day, right? Or, you know, in the winter that there's not, you know, there's not a, you know, there's basketball day or whatever, you know. So, um, it, you know, people then can gravitate to the things that fit them, but also they've had great coaching and they have competed against really good athletes all along. Because this is what a lot of kids say is like, we would love to play in the in-town league, but there's none of the none of the good kids are there anymore. That's such a great idea. I, I don't think I've ever heard of that before, even a, a multi-sport club. So I've completely missed out on it. That's the European model, right? Barcelona is not a soccer club. Barcelona is a sport club, and so is Bayern Munich and whatever. I mean, this is the European model that I think there's a space for in North America. They do it right on so many levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, is there a myth or misconception uh, that you frequently come across in your area? Um, so I would say that the, a myth from a parent side is the idea that you can make, well, uh, you know, one, one of the big myths I come across is that sport can either be fun or competitive, right? Like that, that's when I get an email a month from someone asking me whether they should join the competitive club or the fun one. And that to me is insane, right? It's got to be enjoyable. I I know that as hard as you work to go to an Olympics, you know, you're still there enjoying every moment that you're playing volleyball, right? And so this idea that these 10-year-olds aren't supposed to enjoy this, this is competitive sports, is just absolutely insane, right? So that's big myth number one, I think, that I I deal with a lot. Um, You know, number two myth is that, oh, it's easy to play sports at the next level, right? It's easy to become a college athlete. You know, in the U.S., the statistics are like 3% of high school athletes even play a college sport and 1% get a scholarship. So we have a 99% not going to make it rate in terms of if your only goal is uh, to get a scholarship to do this. Um, and then and then I think, you know, you know, number three, from a coaching perspective, that kids will trust you and they will care what you know, regardless of whether they think you care about them, Right. And that's just not true, that that the best coaches in the world, whether they're professional coaches or working with kids, they have these incredible connections with their athletes. And once the connection is built, then kids trust them and say, what can you teach me about the sport? Love that. A lot of great, great truths in there. And that was one of the slides that really hit me was the, the fact that kids will open up to you once they understand how much you care about them. And that's just so, so powerful. Mm -hmm. Could you share a tale or a moment that really captures why you love what you do? Oh man, you know, I I think there's, I think there's a a lot of those. And again, they have nothing to do with like winning a trophy or, or anything like that. Um, You know, I, I would say, you know, like behind me in this video, I have like a, a one trophy on the shelf and it was for 
a team that we went to a tournament and everyone got food poisoning and, you know, ended up in the hospital and I got food poisoning. And so did my assistant coach. And like of 16 people, 12 were puking and we still finished second. And the kids always talk about that. Like, oh, remember that we had the garbage can at the goal so we could puke during corner kicks and stuff like that. And you're like, so those, those are the type of memories. But, you know, I, I really think about about two years ago, maybe not quite, I, I had this day that really spoke to me about what does it mean to be a coach? Um, because on that day, um, in the morning, I got a wedding invitation where um, a boy I'd coached, and a, you know, who's now a U.S. Marine and a girl I had coached um, were getting married to each other. And so they were inviting my wife and I to their wedding. Um, and then a couple hours later, I um, got a text saying that a friend of mine had, had passed away and he had taken his own life and he had three kids that I had coached. And um, so I immediately reached out to his wife and said, what can I do? And they said, you know, can you, you know, take lunch to his older son who's at school because he just had to get out of the house and be around his friends. And I think that was like one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do, but like there in one three hour period, I think you have what it means to be a coach. And and none of those phone calls or invitations or requests were because, you know, boy, you really taught my kid how to kick, you know, like this was because that you were a role model and, uh, and, and a, consistent positive influence in their life. Um, and so that's what, you know, those are the type of moments that really stick with me as a coach far more so than, or, or even the ones where a kid like four years after you butted head said, now I know what you mean. <laughs> you know, th- those ones are pretty cool too. Love it. Uh, keeping it on the, on the personal side before we move to the, to the coaching collective, um, what culture change are you personally championing through, through this work? Just, I, I would, you know, say more than anything that we're developing people first and, and athletes second, right? And that if we are ignoring character and we're ignoring confidence and building great teams, then we're not setting athletes up for success at the next level of sport. And we're not certainly not setting them up for success in life. So, but under helping people understand that if we do focus on those things, um, it, it it leads to greater outcomes on the field and and in the classroom and everywhere else. I could not agree with you more. There is such an opportunity in connecting sport to to that life development, and and you've shared it both here and in some of your presentations that I've I've listened to and watched. Just the the depth and the layers to that practice can go so far for helping that that child or, or youth or, or athlete for the rest of their lives. And so I, I commend you on that. I, I absolutely love it. And I'm 100% on board with that, John. Yeah. Well, cool. Awesome. Uh, moving towards the coaching collective, um, why did you want to be a part of the, the QCC? Well, you know, when Matt Young first reached out to me and said, hey, I want to start this thing. You want to be a part of it. You know, and I look at the list of the people who are involved. I'm like, well, of course I want to be a part of that because those are all people who's do incredible work, whose work I respect and really admire. And I get a ton of 
inspiration from. So I'm like, wow, I can kind of sit in the same virtual room as them month after month. And then I think really that group is on to something smart that if we work together, um, <clears throat> you know, Matt, Matt, Matt loves to say, he said, you know, if, if, uh, if, um, they give out gold medals for talking about problems, Canada would win a lot of them. Right. And I think in North America, we're, we're, we're pretty, pretty good at that as well. And so what I saw was a whole group of people who were doing something, you know, whether it was you through your gyms and your, you know, holistic approach to athlete development to, you know, what Matt was doing in schools and with these documentaries, like the cost of winning and stuff to obviously Wade Gilbert and his incredible work and, in coaching. And I mean, the list goes on and on Steve Boyle, two for one sports. And so, you know, I looked at that group and say, yeah, well, you know, the rising tide can raise all this. And it, even the couple of months, the group's been together, you know, when you see these updates of what people are doing and where we're presenting and how we're connecting to each other's work. Um, I think it's pretty cool because, you know, they say in marketing, right. Someone has to hear something seven times before they act. Well, if there's the more of us out there saying these things, the more likely someone's going to get to number seven sooner and go, eh, maybe this isn't working. Absolutely. Um, what does the QCC mean to you? Well, I, I think, first of all, sometimes in this world, we can feel like we're on an island, right? Am I the only one talking about this or whatever? So it's, it's first of all, it's just a great group of people to bounce ideas off of and to collaborate with. And in, you know, just the last month alone, I've probably had phone calls or podcast interviews or face-to-face -face meetings with five or six people of, of that group, right? Um, <clears throat> so it's just this great group of of people, I think, consistently um, just doing good work on every level, right? From elite sport level down to the grassroots to in elementary schools and daycare centers to whatever. So to me, it's just it's just this way to consistently be held accountable uh, to keep up with a bunch of hard chargers <laughs> in a way. Everyone is rolling. I agree. There's There's been so much great activity that's passed through, and it's, it's hard to keep up. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, what gets you excited about the QCC? Because you're also one of those active people who's out there doing big things. Well... I'm excited that it's growing, right, and that we're recognizing more people who are coming into it and, and who are finding it and saying, hey, you know, that sounds like something, you know, how, how do I join that that club? And, and so, you know, it's kind of like do great work, <laughs> you know, and be willing to share with others. Um, so that excites me. Number two, again, just the ability to share with other people that, hey, you know what, I can't go to – this event on this day, but I'm part of this great group of people and maybe one of them can because they live closer or they live right there or they were already going. So I, I think that kind of stuff is, is, um, you know, really exciting about it. And, and, and I think sort of the idea behind it is that these are trusted resources. These are vetted men and women who are doing work in a lot of different fields so that, you know, if you find a coach or, you know, you find a speaker or presenter from this group, you know, that, you know, you know, they're doing good work. I mean, it's almost like it's like a presenter's a speaker's bureau, as we call them in the U.S., right? But in this area of 
physical literacy and sport development and expertise and coaching and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, what kind of support would you like to receive or would you want to receive from anyone in the QCC? If any at all. I mean, I feel like I'm supported already. I feel like I don't do enough. That's like my biggest thing. I'm like, oh man, like I, I, I wish I was added more or sending my updates. We, you know, we're myself and Reed and Glenn and Sky and now James, we're, we're so busy that it's like, oh my God, we're just hanging on sometimes at this time of the year to get stuff done. And, and then Matt puts out this update. I'm like, ah, oh, man, I just, you know, I didn't watch that webinar. I didn't listen to that podcast. I wish I was supporting them more. So yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I feel more like an anchor than a motor right now. <laughs> well, I can vouch for the presentation that, that you did was certainly the opposite of an anchor. So uh, you're, you're doing great things. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Where, where do you think lies the greatest possible impact for the Quality Coaching Collective? You know, it's it's hard to say because, um, you know, amongst this group, we're in so many different areas, you know, and, and I and I say that because in my experience with Change in the Game Project, <clears throat> if every January you asked me to predict where we would make the biggest impact that year, I would have been wrong all five years, right, or four years now, Um so so I think, you know, trying to predict that is great, but I think the areas that we can influence, certainly better coaching education, better parent engagement, um, teaching, understanding and teaching, you know, physical literacy at really young ages, um, supporting teachers that, hey, you can have an impact on this, um, helping governing bodies connect with the grassroots clubs um, so that these good research-based initiatives that happen on a national or a state or a provincial level um, trickle down to the local community club. And sometimes I think they don't. So, I, you know, I think those are all kind of the areas that we can be um, very influential in, in, in helping spread this message. I think information is a huge strength, and we're starting to see it through the webinar. So 100%, you are correct on that. Um, last one here. Is there anyone on the QCC you want to thank or, or acknowledge uh, or any any project that you've done that you want to highlight that, that has been a part of the QCC? Well, uh, I mean, I, I feel like if I acknowledge anyone individually, it would be an affront to all the other good work people are doing. So I'd like to thank you for starting this podcast, which is a really cool way to get the message out. I certainly want to thank Matt and his team that sort of kicked the thing off and said, we need to create this collective. And and because he's someone that I've spoken to a bunch and done a bunch of stuff with recently, you know, I, I really think, you know, the work that Wade Gilbert's doing in coaching education is incredibly important and incredibly powerful. And he's created a great framework for, um, for, every across every sport to to start saying this is what good coaching looks like and we should start holding our account, coaches accountable for being these type of coaches right on well hey thanks thanks for giving me the nod and really this is just a trick so that i get to talk to everybody and, and learn from you so uh I, i'm honored a good trick it's, it's worked out well for you <laughs> it certainly has it's worked out really well um and, and looking forward to some more great conversations but that's that's it for me here john so 
uh, just to, to respect your time because I know you're a busy guy and you, you gave me 60 minutes here. Um, thanks so much for, for sharing everything. And it was such a breath of fresh air to hear you talk in person and also to follow up within this conversation here. And I, I just love what you stand for. And I made a, a note in something that really hit me in the mind that culture is a process, not an event. And then an extension of that, which I loved, was performance is a behavior, not an outcome. And those mm-hmm. were some of the, the comments that, that you built out into your, your slides that really left with me and, and uh, an extension of that conversation is this one. So thanks so much for your time and, and well, for sharing. Well, I have to give my friend Mark Bennett credit for performance as a behavior, not an outcome. I don't want him to think I'm stealing his ideas and not giving him credit because I know I did in the talk because he's very influential on my coaching. So <laughs> maybe I'll invite him to be part of the collective. Right on. Well, Mark Bennett, tip of the hat to you. I apologize for not acknowledging you in my, my Cole's notes. Um, but uh, John, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to more updates coming from your end. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, right on. Cheers.